This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. On the evening of September 28, 2017, 30-year-old Christopher Grover was shot in the head by his living girlfriend and mother of his two young children, Nicole Adamondo. Was this self-defense after years of physical and sexual abuse, or was this a cold-blooded murder? This is episode 22, The Nicole Adamondo Story. Hi, Megan. Hi, Amy. How are you? I'm okay. A little stir crazy at this point, but glad that we're in the studio recording today. Yes, I'm happy to see you. So before we get into the story, I actually want to tell you how I've heard about this case. Okay. One of my old friends from when I went to sleepaway camp, I'm friends with her on Facebook, and I saw her posting a lot about this Nicole Adamando story. And so I started clicking around and reading into it, and it was a shocking story. I did not hear about it in the popular media at all. Have you ever heard of the case? Not until you mentioned it to me. And then after that, I saw one or two things, but only because I was looking, kind of my alert was up. Yeah, there's not that much information. It is also a fairly new case. The sentencing just occurred uh, two months ago. So I like to talk about the background of the woman we are discussing. However, it was hard to find information on, I'm going to call her Nikki, because a lot of her friends call her Nikki. So from this point forward, Nicole becomes Nikki. Okay. Okay. So I was able to find out that Nikki graduated high school in Hyde Park, New York, and she met Christopher Grover in 2018 when she was just 19 and he was 21. So they both worked together as gymnastics coaches at Mr. Todd's Gymnastics in Poughkeepsie, New York. So at the time, Nikki was, you know, she was still quite young, fresh out of high school. She lived with her mother in an apartment complex that her mother actually managed. So people described her as shy and introverted, but a nice girl. Grover was described as charming, childlike, and playful. So these two started out as really good friends because they worked together. And then, of course, soon they began dating. So Nikki left the gymnastics job in 2011 and started working at a nursery school. The following year, Nikki became pregnant. And at that point, she moved in with Chris Grover. There are reports that money was tight, but otherwise things were pretty good between the two. There were reports that they were a playful, loving couple. At the time of the murder, Nikki was a stay-at-home mom, and Chris was still working at Mr. Todd's Gymnastics as their head gymnastics coach. All right. Okay. So in February 2013, their first child was born, and according to Nikki, the abuse started soon after that. She claims that when the baby was just six weeks old, Chris struck her and forced her to have sex. According to Nikki, he said, you know, you're a great mother, but I have needs also. And, you know, just six weeks postpartum, I guess she wasn't ready to be intimate with him. But according to her, he forced himself on her. And this is point. according to her in this is going to be in the court records. Correct. OK. Yeah. In September 2014, Nikki was pregnant with her second child. And she alleged that Grover bit her on the shoulder, slammed her face onto the counter twice and then sexually assaulted her. Now, this was actually documented. The first time was not documented, okay? So at this point, she called Family Services, which was a victim assistant program, and she was advised to file a police report. But as many women do, she refused. Um, She believed that if she did, that Grover would retaliate and take her children away from her. 
That's a common concern, but she did make the phone call. She did. She did, but I think she was looking for help, but did not want to press charges at this point. Right. So at this time, she did get a forensic nurse exam at a nearby medical center, and that was also documented. And then a few weeks later, she was back at that same facility because there was yet another physical altercation between Grover and Adamando. The report describes Nikki as nervous, whispering, having poor eye contact, and she was shaking. The forensic examiner also took photos of her injuries, which included a bite mark on her shoulder and burns to her breast, thighs, and genitalia. I'm sorry, burns? Yeah, so apparently Chris would um, heat up a spoon on the stove and then burn her on various parts of her body with a spoon. And this is all taken in photographs as well. They did have photographs, which were also introduced at trial, which we'll get to. So, of course, she was encouraged to report Grover to law enforcement, but they can't make you do that. And once again, she refused to do so. So their second child was born in February of 2015, and the abuse just kept continuing. It was alleged that Grover, he would film some of the assaults of Nikki and post it to Pornhub. And actually, they did, they did find videos to corroborate this. So around this time, when she had gone again back to family services, she was given a domestic risk assessment. And this assessment she was given placed her in the highest risk category for homicide. Wow. Some of the criteria included sexual assault, abuse while pregnant, gun ownership, and strangulation. She fell into all those categories. Chris, Chris did legally own a gun. Okay, that's good to know. So in November 2015, advocates from Family Services contacted a detective to look into the case. Because although Nikki did not want to press charges, at some point they do have a burden that they need to pursue some sort of uh, legal action, right? So the detective that they had called learned that Nikki had been making these allegations of abuse and that there were, in fact, the pornographic images of her appearing on Pornhub without her consent. An affidavit attesting to this abuse was prepared by the detective, but once again, Nikki refused to sign it. So let's move ahead to 2017. On September 26, 2017, Adamando and Grover received a call from Child Protective Services. Somebody probably alerted them to something that was going on. It turns out that the agency had received an anonymous report from a mother whose child attended the gymnastics place where Chris worked and Nikki used to work. And this person said they were concerned because they saw Nikki's injuries and they had also witnessed Chris losing his temper with some of his students. The following morning, Child Protective Services visited their apartment and interviewed the two separately as they normally would. After the visit, Nikki claimed that Chris made her call family and friends to tell them that Child Protective Services would probably be contacting them and asking them to please tell them that everything was fine. Nikki also feared that Child Protective Services would discover the years of abuse and they would take away her children who at this point were just four years old and two years old. But she also says that she did hope that maybe the agency's investigation would maybe motivate Chris to change his ways. So let's talk about the night of the murder. The shooting occurred in the early morning hours of April 28, 2017. Now, this is just hours after Child Protective Services had opened that investigation against Chris due to the abuse allegations. So many believe that what led to Grover's death and many of the details is really a mystery. So what I'm going to tell you is what we know. Really, the only person that could tell us is Nikki, because obviously Chris was the victim here. There's no way to know exactly what happened. But what we do know is that they were in their shared apartment in Poughkeepsie, New York. Their two young children, again, ages two and four at the time, they were sleeping. Nikki claimed that they had consensual sex. 
And this was, again, after the visit from Child Protective Services just hours earlier. And they were laying together on the couch. He had fallen asleep with his arms around her. She tried to get up and he had awoken. At that point, he pulled a gun from the couch cushions and pointed it at her. And then she kneed him in the groin and struck his arm, at which point Grover dropped the gun onto the floor. Nikki claims at this point she grabbed the gun and pointed it at Chris. And he laughed at her in a mocking way and said, you wouldn't do it. You're not going to do it. And he also said, you know, I'm going to kill you and I'm going to kill me and your children will be left with nobody. At this point, she says she lunged at him and pulled the trigger. Shortly after, she got her children and left the home. Okay, that's her version right now. Yep, that's, that's her version of events. At approximately 2 a.m., a police officer, Richard Sicily, was on his way to a call when he stopped at a traffic light and there was a car that was just stopped there, even though the traffic light was green. So, of course, he did his bullhorn and somebody got out of that car. It was Nikki Adamondo. She got out of the driver's side of the car wearing only socks on her feet. And her two young children were inside in the car seats asleep. She had told the officer, I tried to leave, but he said he would kill me. She said that Chris was still in the apartment and the gun had gone off. Nikki also told police that she killed Grover. She said, yes, I killed him. He had tortured me sexually and physically abused me for years. The police went to the shared apartment and there they found Chris Grover deceased with one gunshot wound to the head. Now, let's take a moment and talk about how his body was found. Okay. So he was found laying on the couch, his head propped up on pillows, one arm at his side, one arm draped across across his torso with one single gunshot wound to the head. That doesn't sound consistent right now with the story that she told. But that's just my opinion at this point. Yeah, so you're not going to be the only one who will think that. We'll talk a little bit more about that crime scene as we get further into the trial. On July 2nd, 2018, Nikki Adamando pled not guilty to charges of second-degree murder, first- and second-degree manslaughter, and second-degree criminal possession of a weapon. After posting a $600,000 bond, Nikki was released on electronic monitoring to await her murder trial, which began in March 2019. So this was an interesting trial because the two sides, as they usually do, right, they both offer two starkly different narratives of what happened here. So in the prosecutor's version, Nikki was a master manipulator who concocted a story of abuse to justify killing Chris. And in fact, she had rehearsed this story and this bizarre narration of events. They had a forensic psych expert who said that there was no indication or evidence that Grover was physically or sexually abusive, which doesn't make sense because... Do you mean the night of or historically and in the past? Historically. That doesn't make sense based on what yeah, you Yeah, the prosecutor also, while well, the forensic psychologist expert for the prosecution also said that Chris had none of the common traits of a batterer and that Nikki was a quote-unquote unreliable historian who put forth so many different accounts of who, who abused her at different times. So let me just explain what this means. Nikki claimed on several, there were several occasions where she claimed that she was abused by other people in her life. And some of them were never corroborated, some were. But the prosecution was trying to say this is a pattern of behavior, that she has many different stories about people who have hurt her over the years. The prosecutor also claimed that Grover was asleep on the couch when the incident occurred. Again, he was found lying on his back with one arm 
um, on his side and one draped over his chest, his head propped on pillows, his legs straight out in front of him, and his eyes were open. So there's really nothing in the literature that states you can tell whether a person was sleeping or not based on how their eyes, whether or not their eyes were open or closed at time of death. So, you know, they did have a medical examiner testify to that point, but there really wasn't much to go on. In other words, at first, they were trying to say his eyes were open, which was indicative of the fact that he wasn't sleeping, but that really wasn't the case. The eyes may not be a point, but the positioning of his body certainly would be sitting up in a prop position versus if he lunged at her and she lunged forward. He, you know, So it's not about, for me, it's not about the eyes, but it's definitely about the positioning, the positioning of yeah. the body. Well, as the prosecutor said, that wasn't self-defense. Chris Grover was sleeping on the couch. This was an intentional murder. There was also evidence that suggested that the gun was pressed right against his head because there was a hard contact wound, which was a burn mark. So that also doesn't really look good for the defense. No, it doesn't. Not, not if they are going with the, the initial story. Yep. The defense testified that Nikki endured severe intimate partner violence at the hands of Chris and that she was in extreme danger on the night of his death. They painted Nikki as a survivor of childhood sexual assault who was tormented for years at the hands of her boyfriend and father of her children. The defense also claimed that Grover began forcing himself on her shortly after their relationship began. He physically and mentally abused her. He forcefully penetrated her with homemade sex toys and foreign objects, including handguns, and he filmed multiple rapes, posting them again to Pornhub, as was mentioned earlier. What we're looking at here is an affirmative defense. So in an affirmative defense, we're looking at a situation in which somebody is saying, yes, I did it, but... But it's justified. Exactly. Quickly, because you just mentioned that there was evidence, though. You're saying they did submit evidence of her being filmed and this mm -hmm. this being released or, or sexual releases. Mm -hmm. And you're also saying there were photographs consistent with injuries. So, I, I mean, I, the defense is making a case for yes. her being, you know, I'm seeing the domestic, you know, mm -hmm. I'm seeing domestic abuse here for sure. Yes. Or at least, uh, you know, I haven't concluded yet. But that doesn't mean that's necessarily consistent with the story. Exactly. So the defense, of course, was claiming that she acted in self-defense as a result of battered women's syndrome. Okay. Battered women's syndrome is actually not a legal defense in New York, but it could be considered as evidence. So what is battered women's syndrome? Well, it's this idea that serious long-term domestic abuse can result in a mental disorder in which it's kind of consistent with PTSD, mm -hmm. right? So it's this idea that a woman could not leave a relationship due to learned helplessness. So again, New York, you cannot use it as a defense, but they, they could consider it as evidence, which is why you know it was brought up in this case. And of course, Nikki herself had to testify. Because if you're going to have an affirmative defense, you need to get up there and explain yourself. Because you're saying, okay, yes, I did this, but this is why I did it. This is why I had to do it. During her nearly month-long trial, she testified for a little over three days about the violence she had suffered, again, including the sexual assault, the beatings, the burnings, having um, videos of her uploaded to porn sites, and repeated that death threats. She also testified about enduring violence from several other people in her life, and there were also multiple witnesses who testified about seeing wounds, including black eyes, bruises, and burn marks. We also saw that domestic violence risk assessment 
which placed her in a high um, risk category for homicide. So again, we already talked about you know, Nikki's story. So the story that I told you earlier about how they had consensual sex and then she got up, he pulled the gun. That's, she said all of that on the stand and she was very emotional. Some other interesting evidence brought up at trial that I just want to talk about before we talk about the conclusion of the trial. There were searches on Chris's phone the night of the shooting, a few hours before the actual shooting. That included things like how to shoot someone in their sleep, where to shoot someone so they die instantly, what part of the brain to shoot, and you know, all searches that would indicate somebody was planning something. Okay. Now, this was done from Chris's phone. One of the searches said, how do you know she or her, that you saw the pronouns of she and her? So they talked about this in trial a little bit, how it could have been an autocorrect. So, you know, I think the defense was trying to say it wasn't Nikki, because why would she say how to shoot her? And I use pronouns of her and she in reference to shooting someone. And I think the prosecution was saying, well, that could have just been autocorrect. We have no idea who was behind those searches, but we do know the searches were done. And they were also deleted shortly after. Oh, that's very interesting. They also found a laptop in the shower or in the bathtub. And Nikki told the police, you know, look on there. That's where you'll find evidence of the abuse. But the police were not able to get any evidence off of that computer. They also found another deleted text on Nikki's phone that was of interest, saying that I haven't figured out a way to kill him yet, which was about a month before. Um, apparently, she had used an emoji. So she said she was being, you know, lighthearted, which I could see. Sometimes you might kid around and be like, I haven't figured out a way to kill him yet. Ha ha ha. I don't About know. your husband, you mean? I'm just saying, maybe not me and my husband, but people... <laughs> no, I've definitely heard... I, no, I think that's actually, you're right. No, because I think that the I context... Didn't mean, I didn't mean your husband. The context was, are you still... Did you leave yet? And she said, no, I haven't figured out a way to kill him yet. Gotcha. Silly emoji, right? So they spent a lot of time on that. Again, it's really hard when you talk about text messages and what the... Uh, she claimed she used that kind of emoji anytime she was kidding and, you know... It, it that, kind of became a moot point, I think. But. That piece means nothing to my yeah. final conclusion. So not surprisingly, on April 12th, 2019, after just three days of deliberation, Nikki was convicted of second degree murder and criminal possession of a weapon. Again, that weapon was legally registered to Chris, but it was not hers. Okay, so she's convicted of second degree. Had they charged her with first degree? They did, correct? They tried to say she was premeditated, but the jury went for second degree in possession. So, correct. okay, what sentence did she get? All right, so before we get to that, I just want to point out that this verdict was shocking to most people because history really favored Nikki because since the 1950s, at least nine other women in Dutchess County, which is the county where she was convicted, had killed their partners and claimed self-defense, and not one of them had been convicted of murder. So historically speaking, people felt that this is a jurisdiction that really, I don't want to say favors women in domestic violence situations, but... Women have done historically well. It makes me think of the Hunger Games. May the odds be ever in your favor. <laughs> it's a terrible point, but it, you're, I get the point. <laughs> So ironically, though, weeks after Nikki's conviction, the Domestic Violence Survivors Justice Act was signed into law by Governor Cuomo in New York as part of his 2019 Women's Justice Agenda. So this landmark legislation basically gives judges the flexibility to sentence domestic violence survivors who are convicted of offenses that are related to their abuse. So in other words, it's a way for judges, their hands to not be tied and to give shorter sentences to women that are claiming um, self-defense that have been historically abused. Is there a range of sentences from which judges have to select or is it open? The range there would be five to 15 years. Okay. 
if they are sentenced under that new act. Understood. Okay, so basically the attorney would have to apply for a reduced sentence under that Domestic Violence Survivors Justice Act. So, of course, her attorneys did just that. So this led to a three-day hearing in which new evidence and testimony was offered. So in order for your sentence to be considered under this new legislation, there has to be a new hearing in which new evidence and testimony is offered. So you have to um, almost prove your case again to even be considered to be sentenced under this new act. What new evidence then did they offer? So basically what they did is they had mostly organizations, legislators, and activists who were endorsing Nikki. Many wrote letters directly to the judge. And even those who created this new legislation reportedly said that they saw Nikki as a poster child for this law. So there was a lot of support from the community. But to many people's surprise, on February 5th, 2020, the Dutchess County trial judge, Edward McLaughlin, denied the application. He ruled that Nikki did not meet the three-point criteria for sentencing under this new Domestic Violence Act. What was the three-point criteria? Okay, so number one, the defendant must have been a victim of domestic violence at the time of the offense. So I think we could say Nikki fits that based on the evidence. I think she sounds like a, a victim. Second, domestic violence must have been a significant contributing factor to the defendant's participation in the offense. That one's not as clear cut. Okay, I'm going to say she possibly meets that, but okay. I agree, but I could see where that yeah. one's not as clear cut as number one. And the third one is the defendant's sentence under the current law would be unduly harsh. That's totally subjective. Yeah, as most of these things tend to be, right? So we know, you know, this is where it becomes problematic, right? Because we know that most intimate partner violence occurs in private with very few witnesses. However, that wasn't the case with Nikki, right? Her partner posted videos of the abuse online. These videos were witnessed by law enforcement and mental health counselors. She also had medical documentation of her injuries. That would have been impossible to self-inflict. And there were dozens of individuals who corroborated seeing bruises, burns, and even her arm in a sling. So despite all this, the judge ruled, as is a quote, the judge ruled that, quote, the defendant had many non-lethal options at her disposal and she had the opportunity to safely leave. So he claimed that the court cannot make a determination on the quote unquote alleged abuse. And he sentenced her to 19 years. 19 years in prison. Yes. So So she could have gotten five. She could have. But she got 19, mm-hmm. which means with good time behavior and all that, she'd probably serve still about 14 or 15 years. Yeah. So I just want to talk about this a minute because this was a decision, despite testimony of a nurse who witnessed horrific injuries that Nikki sustained, including, again, the burns to her genitalia and, you know, the bruises and all of that. This also is despite medical records that spanned over three years that named Chris as her abuser, despite the testimony from witnesses who saw the bruises, the black eyes, strangulation marks, and despite testimony from the mental health provider who witnessed Chris raping her on video. And so despite all of this, the judge actually said that Chris did not fit the profile of an abuser. You know, this is problematic here. Whether or not Nikki killed Chris in self-defense... I think it is very clear that she suffered horrendous abuse at the hands of Chris. I agree. And whether or not on the surface he fits the profile mm-hmm. does not should not be a criteria yeah. here. And this because really he, he it, it seems that he committed the act. So he may not. We know sometimes people are outside that profile. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that he didn't do that. And the exactly. judge seems to be negating it like he doesn't seem like the type. So he probably wasn't. Yeah. Ignoring the evidence. Yes. 
So this decision really sets a dangerous precedent for subsequent criminalized survivors in New York, right? Because this suggests that the system will not believe you, even with overwhelming evidence, because we do see overwhelming evidence here as far as the history of abuse. So Nikki gave a powerful personal statement at her sentencing. She said, quote, I wish more than anything it ended another way. I wouldn't be in this courtroom right now, but I wouldn't be alive either. This is why women don't leave. They so often end up dead or where I am standing, alive but not free. I have to say I agree with that statement completely. I mean, unfortunately, we know our justice system is stacked against women who suffer from domestic violence, right? And it's shockingly common for domestic abuse survivors to be incarcerated after defending their lives. It's also true that, you know, sometimes these cases are much harder because they're a female or a male, because both can obviously suffer from domestic violence, haven't reported anything. So there's been no official documentation, no arrest reports, no anything Um, So it makes it harder. But in this case, there is an abundance of reporting. So I'm not sure what more she would have needed. Yeah, I agree with you. And I just want to take a moment to talk a little bit about how vast this issue is in our criminal justice system. Okay. First of all, nearly one in five women report having experienced severe physical violence from an intimate partner in their lifetime. We also know that there are many circumstances that prevent victims from leaving. A lot of time, it's the fear of losing custody of children, as was the case in Nikki's situation. We also know that um, it takes women on average at least seven attempts to leave an abusive partner. And when do you think the most dangerous time for an abuse victim? When they are trying to leave their partner. Exactly. What happened in this situation is consistent with what we know, right? CPS came she claims that things were getting a little rocky. People were learning about this abuse and this could have caused an issue in the relationship and possibly maybe she was trying to leave. I don't know. But unfortunately, almost 70% of women who are sent to prison for killing someone close to them were abused by the victim of their crime. This number was shocking to me that almost 90% of incarcerated women are survivors of gender violence. Okay, I knew that number was high because I teach women in crime. Uh, I thought it was a little less. That's high. Mm -hmm. Well, that number also comes from the New York legislation. So that might be state specific. But that number still, you know, even if we're looking at just for New York, that number is absurdly high. But comparatively, the number the number is still very high. Yes. Nikki has a defense committee, which is really a group of supporters that are trying to raise money for her defense and for her children. So her children are now with her sister, who is raising her two young children. And of course, this sentencing just happened very recently. So I tried to reach out to them. No one wanted to talk, but I'm sure it would be um, not in their best interest since they're trying to work on appeals at this moment. There's a website called We Stand With Nikki, and you can find, they do like fundraising events. They post endorsements, statements of support. Um, Nikki's a very talented artist, so they post a lot of her artwork. She also has a book list. Um, Every time she reads a book in prison, they post what she's reading because she's a very avid reader. So there's like hundreds of books that she's read since she's been in jail. So far, they raised almost 130000 for her defense. Wow. Yep. And over 20000 for her children. And now there are almost 100 organizations, legislators, and activists who have endorsed her application for her sentence to be reconsidered. Okay. So that's where we are now. I have predictions and final thoughts if Please, we're there. Let's do it. Are we at that point? Yes, we are. So... Number one prediction, I predict that she's going to be one of the people who is going to be successful on appeal for reconsideration. You know how hard that is, but I think she's the she's the case in Mm -hmm. which this is going to happen. Number two, my thoughts are and my final conclusions are I believe that she was most definitely a victim of domestic violence, of sexual assault. 
And I believe not taking that into consideration was absolutely a flaw. That being said, I think the only problem I have is, and I believe, by the way, I believe she probably killed her partner out of fear Mm -hmm. of being killed, of being harmed, of her children being harmed. So I believe all of that. The problem is that her story is not consistent with the finding of the body. So I think it probably did not happen the exact way she said, but that I don't think that necessarily negates the fact that she committed this crime out of self-defense for years of domestic Mm -hmm. assault. I do think, given what you've told me today, and I'd have to do a deeper dive based on this information, I think her sentence was way too long. Mm -hmm. I agree. So I think, you know, talking about going back to battered women's syndrome, battered women's syndrome, the reason why it was, I guess, created is in the 1970s, that's the first time it was really used as a legal defense, because there were abused, typically women who murdered their husbands in a premeditated fashion often while the husband was asleep. Um, I don't know if you remember that famous case where there was an abuse victim. Francine Hughes, the burning bed. Well, that one too, but it was a young boy who shot his molester while his molester was asleep. That also brought into this idea, if somebody shoots someone when they're sleeping, which means that they're not an imminent threat to you, is that self-defense? Because we know in order for something to be self-defense, it has to be an imminent threat. Right. But the situation's different when it comes to these kind of domestic batterer cases. Yeah, because the idea is, you know, a lot of these victims can't fight back when they're actually being attacked. And also in the face of increasing violence, they believe that the only way to protect themselves and usually their children is to eliminate their partner when their partner is the most vulnerable while sleeping. Right. And I tend to agree um, based on the evidence I saw, uh, there might be more evidence that I have not seen. But the way the body was situated does not fit with her story of there being a struggle. Like you, I do believe that she was abused. I do believe that she feared for her life. I do believe she maybe needs to be held accountable for her actions because she did take someone's life. However, I think being sentenced under that newer legislation, a sentence of five years or maybe even less would have been a lot more appropriate. Yeah, I have to say I agree. As a last, as closing out here, uh, where can, if anyone wants to look into this again and if they want to support her, where yes. can they go? Uh, we stand with Nikki.com. And there's a Facebook page and there's tons of information. There's even a draft letter that you, a letter of support that you could send to, you know, legislators. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Thank Amy. you. Appreciate it. And thanks everyone for thanks. listening. We'll see you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Our music is composed by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, you can get access to ad-free episodes, exclusive AMAs, and other bonus content for a small monthly contribution through Patreon. To find out more, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode includes WeStandWithNikki.com, The New Yorker, and The Poughkeepsie Journal.